You can stay standing and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10 for our sermon today. We're actually going to start in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, where we read our assurance of pardon from before. This will help us give a little bit of context for what we're going to see in chapter 7. So if you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 1004. Hebrews 6, 17 through 7, 10. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who, has, who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word, and we thank you for this passage, uh, especially on the heels of having read Genesis 14, this account of this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, a passage that often when we come to, uh, there are probably more questions than answers. God, we seek this morning wisdom from you. We ask for clarity that you would make your word clear to us, God, that you would give us insight into the scriptures, that we would see clearly what this whole purpose is of, of this retelling of Melchizedek. God, would you speak to us, speak to your people through your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
Well, if you've seen in your worship guide, title of the message this morning is Melchizedek Who? Which was kind of a joke uh, that James put in the worship guide early in the week. And I didn't really have a sermon title yet. Um, and I was like, that sounds good. Um, pretty fitting. If you're looking for maybe a more serious uh, sermon title, you could write down the question, where are you anchoring your hope? And that's kind of why we went back into chapter six, and we'll be getting into that a little bit more. So Melchizedek, who we're going to be trying to figure out who this Melchizedek guy is. And we're also going to be asking the question, where are we anchoring our hope? Well, if you think about the first time that you listen to a new album, um, and I know in these days, this is like a whole new experience, right? With like streaming and all this, but back in the day, uh, for some of you, uh, we used to have to get cassette tapes, right? Or CDs. Um, and you like ordered it in the mail or you went to the store and bought it and you would listen to this album. You'd listen to something that you'd been anticipating for a while. Um, Obviously, it's, the experience is still the same of listening to something for the first time, but I think that anticipation of having to actually get a physical copy uh, was different. But think about listening to a new album. I think about watching a movie for the first time, or you think about listening to a sermon, which I know you all love doing. Even in each of the, one of those, a, a new album or a movie or listening to a sermon, even if you pay really close attention to everything that's said, even if you're taking notes, there's no way that you're going to be able to remember every single word, right? Every single detail. There's going to be some things that you're like, I really need to go back and, and listen to that again, right? Or I need to go back and watch that again because there was this one part in the movie and I'm not really sure how it connected to that thing that happened uh, later on. So that's, that's a good thing, this, this desire to want to go back. And we think about this letter to the Hebrews here. We've argued that already that this is a sermon, right? It was, it was meant to be read to this congregation. Uh, when we kicked off this series, we asked those in our community groups to read it all together in, in one sitting. Uh, so we did that. It took about 45 minutes to read through it. And if you were a part of that and you remember back to that experience, I know in our group, uh, there was like total chaos, right? Because there was kids around and just all kinds of things going on. So we probably, since then, uh, could have every single community group, we probably could have done the same thing, right? We probably could have read through the entire, this entire sermon of Hebrews. And even after every time, there's still going to be details that we don't quite, like, how did that work? And how did that line up with this thing? I think this is kind of a helpful reminder for us as we think about the context of where we're at in Hebrews, Right now, we are in the middle of this large section, this middle section that began in chapter 4, verse 14, and goes through at least the middle to end of chapter 10. And it's mostly focused on how Jesus is superior to Aaron, and he is superior to the entire Old Testament priesthood. And then as we get into chapters 8 through 10, there's kind of this added layer about the new covenant being better than the old covenant. But that's still kind of all tied to the reality of the priesthood. So if you turn back a couple pages right now to chapter 4, verse 14, I just kind of want to point out a couple things here for us to kind of get our bearings and get the context of where we're at here with chapter 7. 
So in chapter 4, verse 14, our author begins this whole section about how Jesus is the great high priest, how he's greater uh, than the Old Testament priesthood. And as this argument is going on, he quotes from Psalm 110 in Hebrews 5, verse 6, where it says there, as he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so that's the first mention in Hebrew in Hebrews of this figure Melchizedek, who these Hebrew background believers would have been familiar with. So that's the first mention. Then he mentions again in verse 10, uh, talking about Jesus. That Jesus is designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But then, after these two brief mentions of Melchizedek, there is this rebuke in chapter 5, verse 11. He says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So he continues on then through uh, chapter 6, verse 3, with this encouragement for them to go on to maturity, basically saying, don't be dull of hearing, right? Listen to what God says, go on to maturity. And I think today we need this same reminder that the original audience did. Now, as we've been saying, our circumstances, the things that we are kind of outwardly facing in this life, they're not the same exactly as what this original audience was going through. But at the root, I think we have the same struggles, right? We have the same just human struggles to believe and to hold on to our faith. And that's something that we're going to be considering here this morning. So after that reminder, uh, he gives us this challenging warning in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8 about apostasy. And then that is followed by an encouragement about having full assurance of hope until the end. Uh, in chapter 6, verse 11, tells them to not be sluggish. Uh, in verse 12, which again, rem remember that word sluggish is connected to that being dull of hearing. So he's saying, don't be lazy in your, in your listening or in your, your doing. And then that goes into the, the next section, which James walked us through last week in chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, where we looked at God's blessing of Abraham and the oath that God promised to Abraham. Now, this is really important for the context of today because Abraham shows up here again in chapter 7, which we'll see. But I mainly want us to consider here why we read back to chap chapter 6, verse 17 today. I want us to consider this exhortation that we see beginning right in the middle of verse 18. We are told here to hold fast to the hope that is set before us, a hope that is a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls, a hope that has gone behind the curtain on our behalf. So Jesus, as our great high priest, has gone behind the curtain as a forerunner and has become, as our author concludes chapter six, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he comes back to this after taking this kind of pause in verse six, tells them not to be dull of hearing and gives them all these warnings. He comes back now, finally, talking about Jesus, reminding them that Jesus is this high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So can you picture this original audience sitting there listening to this sermon on the edge of their seats, hearing this for the first time, wondering, okay, is he finally going to explain what this all means? Is he finally going to explain this connection 
with Melchizedek and the significance? And the answer is yes. Finally, after all this talking about other things and this kind of delay, he's going to unpack this in chapter seven. And you might be saying, finally as well, because for three of the last four weeks, we've seen these different references to Melchizedek and we haven't really said anything. We've just said, hang on, we're going to get there, right? Hang on until chapter seven. So now we're here uh, with what you have patiently waited for this last month. (laughs) So we are finally here in chapter seven. So now as we dive in here to Hebrews chapter seven, uh, we will consider this mysterious figure who has been hinted at here several times. And we need to consider a few things. We need to consider the significance of his identity here in light, especially in light of what the end of chapter six is calling us to do. The implied exhortation at the end of chapter six is don't anchor your hope to anything other than Jesus. Don't anchor your hope to anything other than Jesus. That is what is implied at the end of chapter 6. So we could state that positively as a question, where are you anchoring your hope? It's kind of our main focus this morning. Where are you anchoring your hope? As we think about application of what's going on here with Melchizedek. So what is this question here? Where Are we anchoring our hope? What does this have to do with Melchizedek? It actually has a lot to do with Melchizedek. I want us to look at three things from this passage, and then I'm going to try to kind of pull it all together and show how the anchoring of our hope, our hope and their hope then, is tied to this mysterious Melchizedekian priesthood. So we're going to answer, try to answer and consider three things here this morning. First, the identity of Melchizedek. We've got a little alliteration for us here. The identity of Melchizedek, the interaction with Abraham, and the importance of Melchizedek. So identity of Melchizedek, interaction with Abraham, and importance of Melchizedek. First, the identity of Melchizedek. The first question just simply is, who was he? And that is answered in verses one through three, in three different ways. The first way to think of who was Melchizedek is we have to look at his offices. Says there in chapter seven, verse one, that he was the king of Salem and priest of God most high. Now this summer, and as we've been going through Hebrews, we've been talking about the offices of Christ. Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. We've talked a lot about the importance of those different offices and how we relate to Jesus and how he relates to us. So we see right away here, when we see Melchizedek, we see that he is both a king and a priest, two of those main Old Testament offices. Interestingly, Melchizedek is the only person in the Old Testament who lawfully acts as both priest and king at the same time. You might If I just ask you to think quickly, scan your memory of the Old Testament, who was someone who acted unlawfully as priest and king? Saul. Very good. Yes. First Samuel 13. Saul, the king, was told to wait until Samuel arrived to offer the sacrifice. He was impatient, so he acted as a priest himself, and he offered the sacrifice that he was told to wait for for Samuel uh, to come 
and offer. And as a result of that, the kingdom and the kingship were stripped away from Saul and they were given to David. So there was a very clear delineation in the Old Testament between the work of the king and the work of the priest. There's also this very interesting reference in Zechariah chapter 6, where the crown is placed on the head of Joshua, the high priest. And there's this messianic prophecy, this future prophecy about the branch who shall rule on his throne as priest. And pretty clearly, I think we can say that is pointing us forward to Jesus. So there's this negative picture, right, of Saul trying to be king and priest at the same time. And then there's this positive picture that's pointing forward to the high priest and the king being united in one. So that's the, that's the idea of the offices, okay? Second thing we see of Melchizedek's identity is his names. He is called, uh, we see this here in the middle of verse two, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Now, in the Hebrew, the word for king is melech, okay? And you got to get the in there when you say that, okay? Melech. The word for righteousness is tzedek. So you put melech and tzedek together and you get Melchizedek, okay? That's where the name Melchizedek comes from. He is the king of righteousness. That's why it says here in, in uh, Hebrews 2, he is first by translation of his name. That's what it's saying. Literally, his name is trans- translated king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. Salem sounds like the Hebrew word shalom, right? Which is the word for peace. And it's probably likely that uh, Salem is an early name for Jerusalem. There's some scholarly debate on this, um, but it's likely that uh, Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which became Jerusalem. Okay, so that's what his name, that's why his names are significant. And then the third thing we see about Melchizedek is his heritage. Now in verse three, there are these five things that are listed, these five negative things. He is without father, He is without mother. He is without genealogy. He does not have beginning of days, and he does not have end of life. Now, there are a lot of speculation, uh, lots of speculation over these verses, which I'll come back to some of these things later on. Um, Some people say that Melchizedek was a theophany. Uh, He was actually an appearing of God in human flesh. Some people say that it was a Christophany, so it was a pre-incarnate Christ actually appearing here. Others think that Melchizedek was an angelic being. I think, again, it's probably best not to speculate too much here and to get into any wild theories. There have been a lot of different views kind of held all throughout church history. Uh, Some in the early church leaned pretty heavily on this interpretation of Melchizedek being an angelic being. Uh, But the most common view, I think, the most probably and the safest view, I think, is that Melchizedek is actually a real person. He was a real person in history. And when it says here that he has no father or mother, no genealogy, no no beginning of of days or end of life, um, what it means is that there is no record of those things in Scripture. 
And if you look at all the names throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis, it's all about genealogies, right? Like who came from who, who their, who their father is, um, all these different things, how old they were, how long they lived, when they died. And there's nothing about that for Melchizedek. And so I think, I think the point here is that we have no record of these things. He's, he's this mysterious figure. Um, and partly it's that he, he, he's not related to Abraham, right? He just kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, and so that's, I think, what it's saying here. Um, and really kind of the interpretive thing that's helpful there is where it says in verse three, resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Um, where it says he's resembling the son of God, I think we can pretty safely say that that means that he's not the son of God, right? He's not a pre-incarnate uh, Christ. He's not the father. He's not an angel. Um, and also when it talks in, in chapter one about Jesus being superior to the angels, uh, I think there's some connection there that, that Melchizedek is not an angel. So there's, again, there's all kinds of interpretive ideas here, but safest bet, I think we should say that Melchizedek was a real person. That's my view. Uh, you're free to have another view, and it doesn't really matter, I don't think. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's interesting nonetheless. But And really, looking at verse 3 there, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. I think what the point that we are to take away here is that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He is a figure of a future reality. He is something that we are to look back to and say, oh, that was actually pointing us forward to something greater to come. So Melchizedek really pointed us forward to Jesus. And then verse four really serves as a good transition uh, between our first two sections. It says, see, or really consider, uh, this is to like really think about this, right? Consider how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So author of Hebrews calls him a man, right? Um, so consider the greatness of Melchizedek, consider who he was, and then consider what he did, how he gave a tenth of the spoils to Abraham. So that's a, a kind of a transition into our second section here as we look at his interaction with Abraham. Uh, this section is pretty short, um, just kind of considering the details there, some of them from Genesis chapter 14, which James uh, read earlier for us. Abraham uh, returns from defeating these four kings. He rescues his nephew Lot, and then he is met by Melchizedek, and two things happen. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and then Abraham gives a tenth of everything. So all of the spoil from defeating these four kings um, Melchizedek gives a tenth of all, or Abraham gives a tenth of all of that to Melchizedek. And there are two things that happen here that are of great significance. Now, if you're doing a Bible reading plan, and I don't know where some Bible reading plans still in, probably still in Genesis uh, right now. A lot of the like read through the Bible in a year plans. So you might be getting close to the end of Genesis, and you're if you're in. Uh, one of those plans. And if I asked you, what are the five most important events so far that you have read in Genesis? You might talk about the creation of the world. You might talk about the fall. You might talk about the flood, the Tower of Babel. You might look at chapter 12 and the call of Abraham and, and some of the other things that happened with Abraham. Now, if I ask you, list the top 10 or even the top 20 events that you can think of in Genesis. 
this seemingly obscure meeting here between this mysterious Melchizedek who appears in Genesis 14 in this one scene and then is referred to about a thousand years later just in this one verse in Psalm 110, you're probably not going to think of this scene in Genesis 14, right? You're probably not going to say, man, like all of Genesis hangs on this one event. You're probably going to be like, yeah, there was some like wars going on and fighting and other things, but this is just another one of those. There's this guy, whatever. Doesn't seem that important. But is it important? And we have to ask if it is, why? Why is this important? We obviously know that I'm going to say, yes, of course it's important because first of all, it's in the Bible, right? It's important because it's in scripture. Obviously not every event that happened is recorded in scripture, right? The fact that this is recorded and it's here, it's for our benefit. And even if the New Testament never mentioned Melchizedek, this encounter with Abraham in Genesis 14 would still be significant. But I would say to us how much more since the author of Hebrews who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, since he unpacks it here in chapter seven, how much more important is it for us to pay attention to this event? So let's consider now the importance of Melchizedek. Why is he important? Why is his interaction with Abraham in Genesis 14 important? And we have to remember that the whole point of this middle, this main middle section of Hebrews is to argue that Jesus is greater than Aaron and Jesus is greater than the Old Testament priesthood. Remember, the people here are struggling with this temptation to go back to reliance upon the sacrificial system. So our author here goes to Melchizedek to show the superiority of Jesus to the Old Testament priesthood. Here he reminds these Jewish background believers in verses 5 and 6 that the descendants of Levi, they have a command in the law to receive tithes from their brothers. And this would have applied to them, this original audience, and to their ancestors. So if you remember back into uh, the book of Numbers, and then we see also in Joshua, there were 12 tribes of Israel, and all of the other 11 tribes besides Levi, they were all to receive an actual inheritance of land. They got a physical. So if you open up to the back of your Bible, if you've got the the map in there and you look at the different tribes, right? uh, It actually kind of looks like 12 tribes because of the, you have the half tribes of Manasseh. Uh, But the tribe of Levi actually does not get a physical land inheritance. And the other 11 tribes were to fund the priesthood, and the livelihood of the Levitical priests. That is what all of these tithes went to. The tithes that went to the Levitical priesthood were to actually, were for their livelihood. So the other 11 tribes all were to fund that work of the priesthood for these Levites who served and served God, served the people of God uh, in the worship, in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, and then later on in the temple. So very important, right? The priesthood is very important. But we are told in verse 6, it says, But this man, speaking of Melchizedek, who did not have his descent from them, from the Levites, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So the tithes were 
originally to go to the Levites, right? Um, who weren't yet, which we're going to see in the next few verses. But Melchizedek, the point here is Melchizedek was not a Levite, right? He was not, uh, the Levites did not come from Melchizedek. They actually came from Abraham. But Abraham gives the tithes to Melchizedek. This would have been shocking to the, origin, the original hearers of this, to hear this. God blessed Abraham, and Abraham was to be a blessing to all the nations. Abraham was the father of the nation. Right? He was the father of the nation of Israel. He was the highest figure in the Old Testament. So what is going on here? What is this claim that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and that Melchizedek received tithes, tithes from him. Does that make Melchizedek greater than Abraham? They would have wondered. Our author wastes no time in answering their question in verse 7. The answer clearly is yes, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. It says in verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So he pulls no punches here saying that Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek. Philip Hughes in his commentary writes this. He says, The great boast of the Jews was that they were the descendants of Abraham, the friend of God and the recipients of the promises. But here is someone in their own scriptures who is manifestly Abraham's superior. Now this language here of inferiority and superiority is really important, especially in Hebrews. The word for superior, it's used 15 times in the New Testament. 13 of those uses are here in Hebrews. Here in, verse, in uh, chapter 7, verse 7, the word superior is used. And the only other place in Hebrews that it's translated superior is in chapter 1, verse 4, where it says that Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, the other 11 translations in Hebrews, it's translated as better, right? Which our theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better, right? So this word translated all of these times in, in Hebrews, superior twice, better 11 times. Again, our, our main theme here, here are some of the things in Hebrews that Jesus is better than or that are better because of Jesus. A better hope, better covenant, better promises, better sacrifice, better possession, better country, better life, and better word. The entirety of the Christian experience is better than what was offered through the Old Testament sacrificial system. That's really what the whole point of Hebrews is. All of these things are better because of Jesus. Now, again, as we've said, this doesn't mean that the Old Testament sacrificial system was bad, right? It wasn't, it wasn't sinful. In and of itself, it, God put it in place. So it wasn't wrong and it wasn't bad. It was just insufficient and incomplete to do the work to actually save us. So as great as Abraham was, this father of the nation in whom people had put their hope, he was inferior to Melchizedek. Melchizedek actually acted as an intermediary between Abraham and God, right? When we think of this idea of someone being an intermediary between us and God, this is, it's this idea of being superior, right? 
I remember in college, I was having a conversation with, with a, a guy who lived on my floor and I was, a, I was a new Christian. I had grown up in the Catholic church, but I didn't really like understand the gospel, became a Christian in college. And I was talking with this guy and he was like saying, oh, the Pope is way holier than I am. He's way closer to God than I am. And I was like, no, he's not. He's just another sin, a sinner just like you and me. But in his mind, right? And in certain systems, there's this idea that, well, I can't go to God. I can't get to God on my own. And I can't, I can't pray to God. I can't talk to God. I need someone in between me and God, right? Which is true. We do, right? We need Christ. We need an intermediary. But the fact that Melchizedek operated as this intermediary between Abraham and God shows that he was greater than Melchizedek. And if Abraham needed that intermediary, how much more did his descendants? So the insufficiency of the Levitical priesthood, it's also emphasized as we keep going in verse 8. It says, in the one case, that is the inferior case, in that case, tithes are received by mortal men. Now, the word literally here, we could translate it, they are received by men who are dying. Like they're men who are actively in the process of dying, right? But in the other case, in the superior case, they were received by Melchizedek, of whom it is testified that he lives. Then verses 9 and 10, which seems to kind of be this cryptic statement about Levi in relation to Abraham and Melchizedek, I think simply just means that Abraham, as Levi's great-grandfather, he essentially represented Levi when he paid these tithes to Melchizedek. So it's just another way of emphasizing that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and that he's greater than Levi and the whole Levitical priesthood. So bringing this all full circle now back to chapter 6, verse 20. Jesus' forever high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek is far superior to the earthly Levitical priesthood upon which the people of Israel had been dependent for the last 1,500 years. Okay, this is a shocking statement here. So in a sense, the argument here from the author of Hebrews is this. There has always been a priesthood superior to the Levitical priesthood. That's why he goes back to Melchizedek saying, the Levitical priesthood was never the superior priesthood. There has always been the need for a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a forever priesthood that does not need to be continually restocked after the death of every earthly priest, right? All these priests are going to continue to die, and what do we do? We got to put somebody else in their place to keep this thing going, right? Jesus has always been the long-awaited high priest. And we're going to really get into this a lot more in the next two weeks as we keep going in chapter seven. But for now, I want to bring us back to our, our initial exhortation and the question from the end of chapter six. The exhortation or the encouragement is don't anchor your hope in anything other than Jesus. Or stated positively as a question, where are you anchoring your hope? Okay. So before we consider this question for ourselves, we need to consider it again for our original audience, the audience of the Hebrews here. So there is considerable evidence that for about a 300 year period from about 200 BC to 100 AD, 
that there were many fringe groups that had built up some pretty wild ideas related to the identity of Melchizedek. Now, the three most popular religious groups at the time of Jesus, two of them we actually see referenced in the, Old, in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then the third group is the Essenes. Now, the Essenes were a group of priests who broke off from the mainstream and they retreated to living near the Dead Sea. They practiced things like poverty and celibacy and daily immersion rituals like daily baptisms uh, for purity. So this, would, this is kind of like a forerunner to what would come later in the like kind of Christian monastic movement, right? They, these people who are going away, like getting away from society, poverty and celibacy and these daily rituals. So this group, the Essenes, um, were kind of, kind of prominent. If you've heard of the Qumran community, Q-U-M-R-A-N, that's uh, the area where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Uh, this is where the, the Essenes were known to live uh, primarily. They were kind of scattered throughout other places, but primarily they were in this area, um, this Qumran community. And these, these scrolls were found in all these different caves. Uh, in cave number 11, there was a scroll fragment that was discovered where Melchizedek is presented as this eschatological deliverer. He's presented as someone who kept himself pure from idol worship, and therefore he was going to be this end times deliverer. Uh, in some of these scrolls, there are also connections made between Melchizedek and the archangel Michael, uh, which probably contributed to some of these other groups popping up. Uh, one, of the, one of the sects that was very popular at that time was simply known as the Melchizedekians. Uh, so we don't really, don't really know a lot about them, how big they were, but it was kind of this fringe group off of another fringe group that had these like kind of crazy ideas about Melchizedek. So th again, this would have been the air that our original audience would have been breathing. There would have been many people with these wild ideas about fleeing from society, about finding their identity and their significance, and about anchoring themselves to some man-made system of belief. And some of this may have been just outright heresy and craziness, while some of it may have been very subtle, cloaking itself in biblical-sounding teachings while having its anchor improperly placed. You might be sitting here today thinking, well, those aren't the same types of things that we're struggling with today. We don't have these groups who are like, we don't have these Melchizedek groups today who are trying to like gather people to themselves. You might think like, I'm not susceptible. That's, that's just craziness. I'm not susceptible to anything like that. Brothers and sisters, friends, the temptation for us to anchor our hope in something other than Jesus is no less of a danger today than it was for them then. While we don't actually have this same actual religious sacrificial system that they had in the Old Testament to fall back upon, let us not think that there are not massive temptations to pull up our anchors and to cast them to some other place that promises to give us more security than Christ. What are the temptations that we might face in this way? For some of us, maybe it's anchoring our hope in our family identity. Uh, we could think about this positively, right? Thinking about maybe like your family name or your family history, your ethnic background. 
Like this is, this is my people, right? This is where I'm from. This is, I belong to, to these people. We might think about it negatively too. Uh, you might be someone who said, I had the craziest family, right? I had so much dysfunction growing up and I've, I've tried to get as far away from that as I can. I've tried to anchor my, my hope. I've tried to anchor my identity in some new community, some new thing. And it's in a reaction to uh, some bad experiences. In both cases, it's easy for us to not anchor ourselves in Christ, right? Whether we're anchoring ourselves more deeply into our family identity or whether we're fleeing away from that and saying, I want to do something different, um, we can be anchoring ourselves in the wrong things. We might try to anchor ourselves in our own sacrifices. You might be thinking, well, what does that mean? Didn't you just say there's no, like, we don't have this sacrificial system? Well, it's not actually animal sacrifices, right? But maybe it's things that we do. We try to offer to society. Um, things like earthly kindness and generosity, which are good things, right? We should do those things. But it can be tempting to say like, oh, well, I'm just, I'm just doing this good stuff, right? I'm appearing to be good. I'm, I'm contributing to society. And that's, that's my, like, right? Like that's what I have to offer. And, and God should accept that because that's what I do. But oftentimes we do those things for selfish gain or for worldly recognition, so it's easy to anchor our hope in, in those types of sacrifices. We might anchor ourselves in our own achievements, academic achievements, sports achievements, succeeding in business, right? And none of those things are, are wrong. Like, I want my kids to do well in school. I want my kids to excel in sports. I hope for you guys, if you own businesses or even if you're not the business owner that you're helping to contribute to the success of the place you work, like for the good of the world around us, we should want those things. But again, it's this subtle twisting of our motivations, right? We can, try, we can easily anchor ourselves in wanting earthly success in any of these areas. And we might even attempt to anchor ourselves in a system of belief rather than in a person. Now, hear me here. I'm not, this isn't this cliche, like, it's about a relationship with Jesus, not religion, right? Like, yes, like we all get that. But that can be overused, right? Like, we are, we do believe in a system of belief, right? Like, we want to have good doctrine. We want to, we want to know what we believe. But if we're only anchored to tradition, and we need to be careful of this, right? Like, we talk a lot about our, our heritage and our our doctrinal standards, Westminster Confession of Faith, all these things. But if we're anchored more to that, if we're anchored more to being Presbyterian than we are being anchored to the person of Christ, then we have a problem, right? Because we're putting our hope in, in this man-made system, which again, isn't, isn't wrong and isn't bad. We need, we need standards, right? We need things to say, this is what we believe and this is what we teach and how we're going to teach our kids and, and how we're going to try to reach the world. But if we're not rooted and anchored in Jesus, then we're in trouble. I shared a couple weeks ago uh, of the Christian hip-hop artist who came out saying he was rejecting his faith. And, and in that video, as I, I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago, there was no mention of Jesus. He didn't say that he was turning away 
from Jesus. He didn't even really say what he thought about Jesus, but he was, he was kind of turning away from this, this system, right? This man-made interpretation of things. And that's something that you're going to hear, right? You're going to hear people say those types of things. And that's understandable, right? That's why we need to be anchored in Jesus first and then kind of understand what we believe after that. So kind of bringing it full circle back to Melchizedek. The name of Melchizedek points us to the truth of who Jesus is. Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. We need to ask ourselves, are we anchored to him? Are we anchored to the king of righteousness and the king of peace? Not Melchizedek, obviously, but Jesus. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 5, we'll see this significance as we prepare to transition to the Lord's Supper. Okay, so Jesus is our King of Righteousness and our King of Peace. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified or made righteous, declared declared righteous, okay, so same word here, this word justified is the same word for righteousness. Since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. We, through him, have been declared righteous by faith, and we have peace with God through Jesus. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified or declared righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, notice this language here, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, this idea of being brought from being enemies to now being reconciled to God, this is the language of peace, right? We did not have peace with God when we were his enemies. Now, because we've been reconciled to God by the death of his son, we have peace with God. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Because of Christ, because of our king of righteousness and our king of peace, we can be made right with God. 
And it says that he reconciled us by the death of his son. As we prepare this morning to come to this table to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to remember Christ's body broken for us and his blood poured out for us, the question that we need to ask is, is this true of us? Have we trusted in Jesus and him alone for our salvation? Again, this whole point of the priesthood of Melchizedek was to point forward to Jesus, right? To say there was this better priesthood. There was this, a picture of a better sacrifice that was to come. And Jesus came and he was that perfect priest and that perfect sacrifice. He laid down his life for us on the cross. And therefore, by faith in him, we can be reconciled to God. We can have peace with God. There is no other way. There is no other way in this world to find peace with God except through Jesus Christ. That is the truth that we believe here. That is the truth that we boldly proclaim here and we are unashamed of. So as we open this table up for you to come, the question is, are you in Christ? Have you trusted in him? Are you anchoring your hope in Christ and in Christ alone? Or are you anchoring your hope in something other than him. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, we would like to talk to you about that. We would ask that you would not come forward and take the elements until you have trusted in Christ. We would also ask that you'd be someone who is in good standing in a gospel preaching church.